The following is an excerpt from M. R. James' O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, when a professor is woken up by a sound in what should have been an empty hotel room. There had been a movement, he was sure, in the empty bed on the opposite side of the room. Tomorrow he would have it moved, for there must be rats or something playing about in it. It was quiet now. No, the commotion began again. There was a rustling and shaking, surely more than any rat could cause. I configured myself something of the professor's bewilderment and horror, but the reader will hardly, perhaps, imagine how dreadful it was to him to see a figure suddenly sit up in what he had known was an empty bed. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's story, Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, comes from British writer and academic M. R. James. First published in 1904, this tale provides the prototype for what some scholars of the genre call the Jamesian literary aesthetic, a departure from the Gothic haunted houses of old and into a world where even the most unremarkable location could contain an unearthly spirit. I will tell this story as Professor Parkins, a physics professor at Cambridge who resembles M. R. James in many respects, with one notable difference. Parkins is a scientist and an aggressive skeptic. But skepticism can only take you so far when a beach vacation turns into a waking nightmare. Coming up, we'll take a stroll along the haunted seaside. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Were I ever to describe my perfect holiday, it would be whiling away the day on the golf course with my dearest companion, Colonel Wilson. We'd work on our par for hours before retiring back to our beloved Globe Inn for an excellent meal. Except today, Colonel Wilson was in a strange mood. 
and it affected my swing. Wilson watched as my ball sailed into one of the nearby tide pools and smirked. That was impressive in its own way. I ignored him and walked to the next hole without a word. Wilson followed and continued to talk enough for the both of us. I'm all for a vacation, but couldn't we have gone somewhere a bit more private? I hear Capri is lovely this time of year. I didn't conceal my irritation. Why are you upset? You like golf and you're winning. Is this just a means of rattling me into a terrible score? Wilson held out another ball. You do that all on your own, dear professor. I could feel my blood begin to boil. All I wanted was a relaxing holiday, and it seemed all Wilson wanted was to spoil it. I huffed. That's it. I placed my club in my bag and told the caddy to take it to the inn. Then I marched to the beach to clear my head. The sandy stretch was near empty, which wasn't surprising considering the cold, salt air and grey sea. In truth, had I not been avoiding Wilson, I wouldn't have considered the notion of a stroll at all. But Lewis, a colleague of mine in the archaeology department at Cambridge, had an interest in the dunes where there was said to be ruins of a settlement from the Knights of Templar. I'd agreed to take a look if I had time, and thanks to the argument, now I did. There had been many disagreements about the location of the early medieval city of Dunwich. It was agreed that it was on the Suffolk coast, but where exactly was a different matter. Lewis had heard of the ruins here on this shoreline and hoped he might find evidence that it had once been a settlement of Dunwich. But as I came upon them on the dunes, the ruins were rather unremarkable. I'm no expert in the field, but to my untrained eye, the series of man-made mounds overgrown with turf and the vague outline of the former structures didn't look particularly epic or inviting. There was a strange coldness to the land, not just the vastness of abandonment, but something deeper, a wound that hadn't scarred. It didn't seem like a good place to settle, Templar or no. I ran my hand over the sandy soil, I could feel the shards of pottery and detritus that accompanied any regular dig. I have attended several against my will, and I confess, these ruins all look the same to me. Still, whether I found them interesting or not, I was certain they would be fascinating to Lewis. It was filled with his favourite things, mystery and dirt. One mystery, however, could be solved with the help of a penknife. I always carried one as the colonel insisted a man should always be able to defend himself. A sliver of metal peered out from the grime, so I dug my knife into the earth to excavate it. I figured that Lewis would have some use for it as a bit of evidence for his next presentation. It didn't want to leave the soil, but I was methodical. I cut lines around it and then dug with my fingers, loosening the earth's grip. What I pulled out was a metal cylinder my fingers ran against an engraving as I worked on cleaning the thing off. As I broke away the clinging dirt, I was left with a piece of metal roughly the same length as my penknife, and the engraving I'd revealed was deep but primitive. It read, Quis es iste qui wainit on one side, and Fur fla flay bis on the other. My Latin had atrophied due to lack of application in the much more interesting modern world, yet as I thought about those words while staring at the sea, 
Their meaning came to me just as waves foamed on the shore. I couldn't make out the second phrase, but it seemed to be some sort of code. But the first, quis es iste qui wainit, meant, who is this? Who is coming? A strange thing for an artifact to ask. I noticed a thin rectangle cut into the surface. It was clogged with dirt, so I cleaned it out and realized that the cylinder itself was hollow. It was a whistle. A beautiful one, too. Now cleaned, its bronze surface glinted in the setting sun, the engraved letters almost glowing. I'd never understood the appeal of studying the past. There was something pathetic in caring about long-dead people who could never care back. Yet in this moment, I wanted so deeply to know the tiny instrument's secrets. So I put my lips to the tube and blew. The sound was almost inaudible, almost like a dog whistle. I wondered if it had been used to call something other than a man. I placed it in my pocket and began to take measurements of the ruins for my colleague. As I did, my mind wandered to my tiff with Colonel Wilson. Perhaps that's why it took me so long to notice I was in danger. The air had been placid only a moment before, but now a wind pushed against me as though I was walking through a thunderstorm. Through the wind, I heard someone move behind me. I hadn't seen anyone around for almost an hour, yet it sounded as if my pursuer was just a few feet away. But when I turned to look, I only saw a lone figure in the distance, silhouetted by the fading sun. I felt their eyes on me and rushed to finish my measurements. If I wasn't in the mood to speak to Wilson, I certainly wasn't interested in chatting with a stranger. I wrote the last of the numbers on my golfing paper and walked toward the inn. The wind did its best to push me back, but I dug my feet in the sand and kept moving, clutching my coat tightly. The wind picked up, its motion so violent that a strange high whistling echoed through the atmosphere. Then I felt something brush against my back, something that felt like a hand. My attacker grabbed my coat, but I twisted violently. My efforts of the swirling wind must have been enough to thwart them, and I felt their grip release me. I did not hesitate to take the opportunity. I ran until I saw the green of the golf course come into view. Only then did I dare to turn around and see who or what had touched me. I was certain it wasn't the figure I had seen coming up on the beach, it couldn't have come to me so quickly, not considering the rough wind and sand. This had to have been someone else entirely. But it was the same figure, a dozen feet away on the sand. I squinted, looking for details as he paused against the darkening sky. He wore some kind of uniform, and his face held no features. He was a blank slate onto which my imagination could cast its fears. I saw him twisting that featureless head to the left and right as though he was looking for me. His movements stilled. Though he had no eyes, I could feel that gaze on me. I stumbled back, nearly tripping into a hole, but strong hands caught me. I looked up in my panic to find Wilson, his face awash with concern. Parkins, are you all right? You were running as if the devil was chasing you. 
I was flooded with relief, yet I drew my eyes away from him to look for the featureless man. But it was just Wilson and I, alone in the gathering dark. I wasn't quite sure he was wrong about the devil. Were I the type to believe in ghosts, which I am not, I'd expect the thing to look like a knight. He was lurking in the ruins of one of their Templars, after all. Instead, the figure had been dressed in all black. Without the benefit of features, he could have been anyone. Yet somehow, I felt he had not been a person for a very long time. Wilson would have thought I was mad. One of the things I appreciated about him was his staunch rationalism. So I kept my thoughts to myself and released him slowly. Even if he believed me, I'm not sure I could explain what had happened. We headed back to the inn. Wilson was teasing me about my earlier tantrum when he stopped quite abruptly. His body tensed, and I groped in my pocket for my penknife. I don't know why I did. It's not like I was better equipped to handle a threat than a military man. Wilson's eyes were locked on the high left corner window of the inn. My eyes adjusted slowly in the twilight, but I was able to make out what he was seeing. There was something moving in the room. A figure was darting about, too fast to be human, but too large and too upright to be any other creature. It was chilling and strange, much more so than the shadow on the beach. And yet, I saw the same darkness here that I did there. I did not realize Wilson was leaning in until his breath was on my ear. I don't want to alarm you, Parkins, but that's your room they're rifling through. A flash of lightning across the sky made my blood run cold, for it lit up the dark room, allowing us to see more clearly. Inside, the strange figure was bent over my empty bed, its face devoid of any features. It was the same creature from the beach that had tried to grab me, and now it had made it back to my room to look for something. When the lightning flashed again, it turned toward the window, and I realized it was looking for me. Up next, Parkins meets his eerie intruder, but not in the way he expects. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Colonel Wilson and I stared up at the window of my hotel room, frozen, as we watched a faceless figure staring back at us. I wanted to tell him about the shadow that pursued me on the beach and the whistle I found that had something to do with it, but he was already running into the inn. To Wilson, the only problem was the violation of my private space. We rushed through the lobby. Wilson yelled for them to phone the police and raced upstairs. The colonel was a perennial man of action, 
He would never wait around for bureaucracy when he believed a wrong had been committed. It was only out of concern for him that I followed. I was in no rush to meet the being that wanted to find me. But I did fear for Wilson's safety. He threw the door to my room open, but we could see nothing in the dark. I took a matchbox and tried to light a match, but the flame died on my fingers. A terrible gust whipped through the room. I could hear the stuttering footsteps of this foul person, but I could not see their shape. I felt a hand grab mine in the dark. I yelped, but then I heard Wilson's soothing tone. Just me, old chap. Don't want to lose you at all. I nodded nobly. Holding hands felt like an excellent idea. Wilson called for the man to show himself and the footsteps stopped. Another flash of lightning cut through the window, but I still couldn't see our intruder. Wilson gently took the matchbox from me and lit a nearby lantern. The room was illuminated. There was no one inside except for the two of us. I felt my hand fumbling for Wilson's, but I reminded myself that my room was lit and empty. There was nothing to fear and no need to bother the colonel with my insecurities. I walked swiftly away from him and toward the window. Let's set about searching then. Perhaps there's a trapdoor. There was a strange pause behind me before Wilson joined in the investigation. I was too nervous to ask him the cause. We studied every inch of the room and by the time we were done, the police arrived and took over. Whoever the intruder was, he'd left no trace behind except for my terribly rattled nerves. And the eerie sound of that shrill, horrible whistle echoing in my mind. Colonel Wilson suggested we go to dinner. I half-heartedly agreed, but I can't tell you what the food tasted like or even what color the tablecloth was. In my mind, I was still in that room upstairs, studying every inch for signs of my intruder. Wilson tapped his fork gently on his plate, demanding my attention. He seemed to read my mind. Perhaps the man climbed out the window, or maybe it was all a trick of the darkness. If there were a breeze, it could move the curtains, and that would look like something else at a distance while we watched outside. I shook my head. We had checked the windows earlier to see if they'd been open, and there was no gap or hint of a breeze. Besides... They creaked when you opened them. We would have heard an intruder leave. But it was the figure's lack of features that truly unsettled me. The more I tried to remember what I saw, the more it slipped away. At the time, I was certain it was a human, but now I wasn't so sure. All I knew was that Wilson was being far kinder to me than I was to myself. I needed his steady hand to absolve me of my fears. I drew the whistle from my pocket and held it out to him. This is how it all began, I think. I found this whistle in the ruins on the beach. With his usual exacting curiosity, Wilson brought it to his lips. I wasn't sure what instinct told me to do so, but I rushed to stop him from blowing it and drew his attention to the engravings. He examined them closely, brow furrowed. Hmm, strange. It says, blow this and you will weep. <laughs> Come now, Parkins, you can't think you conjured something with a whistle. 
I blinked at him. That's not what it says, Colonel. He insisted. Yes, the other side roughly translates to who is this who is coming, which is Isaiah 63.1. But this, he indicated the code side of the tube. I haven't used my Latin in years, but I do love a good code. Fur, fla, flay, bis. Fur, flabis, flabis. I think the translation from Latin would likely be thief, blow this, and you will weep. So I had conjured something by blowing it. I found myself fighting back tears. It was all so absurd. But if I'd been better at Latin, I might have avoided all this. I was being haunted by my own disinterest in the humanities. I shook my head. I feel like this is my fault. Or am I being silly? Wilson softened. You're not silly. But that thing in your room was just a trick of the light. One that I saw too. <laughs> a brilliant mind is a dangerous place, if I do say so myself. But it's only a whistle. And we are only two old men whose sight is failing. But if you're worried, I'm only a room away. You could stay there. I waved his offer away and straightened my napkin. No, I, I couldn't impose. I have interrupted your restful time enough already. Wilson looked at me strangely, almost hurt. Then he took my hand across the table. I'm here for you, Professor. Your rest is my rest, and vice versa. I wasn't sure how to respond. It seemed to be another burden I hadn't signed up for, so I stood up. Good night, Wilson. The colonel was a tall fellow, the very picture of a dashing man in uniform, yet he looked so small then. I could not bring myself to look back. I merely climbed the stairs to my room, prepared for bed, and turned off the light. In the darkness, I felt the temperature of the room shift. Though it was colder now, I shut my eyes and prayed for sleep. Then, there was a faint rustling in the bed beside me. I wasn't sure what to think, but I didn't like where my mind went first. Would Wilson have overridden my wishes in favor of my protection? Had he crept into the room and laid beside me? And why did I not mind this idea? I felt the sheets pull down around me, and yet I kept my eyes closed. It was almost like I preferred this little fantasy over whatever the truth was. But I had to look. So I turned and opened my eyes. No one was beside me. A fact that left me both scared and somehow disappointed. Then I felt five fingers wrap around my ankle. Someone was at the foot of my bed. Someone who pulled. I fell off the bed, wrestling in the dark with my attacker. Their hands grasped at my throat. I tried to pull them off, but they would not yield. I curled my hand into a fist and swung wildly. But where I expected to punch a solid surface, there was only the texture of linen. I thought I'd grasp the attacker's nose through the fabric, but it slipped from my grip as soon as I got a hold. It was as if the sheet 
that slid off my bed had taken the form of a person, then abandoned it when it became inconvenient. Then, those monstrous hands gripped my windpipe and the world blurred around me. I felt a slight draft at my back and realized I was upright and moving backward, pushed by a force I could not see or stop. Then I heard the click of the window latch as it opened. Panic rushed through me. I gasped as half of my body went out the window. My fingers clawed at the frame. I screamed for help, all hope of strength abandoned. Then I heard the door open. My heart leapt but my relief turned to terror as the force pressing against me disappeared. I lost my balance and fell out the window. Something caught my leg before I could drop. I prepared for the worst, but when those hands pulled me up and back indoors, I saw who was now in my room. Colonel Wilson was, as ever, my hero. He claimed to have seen something looming over me in the dark, but it never took enough shape for him to say with confidence what it was. I ended up spending the night in his room, where no strangers came to visit us. What a relief. In the morning, as I was packing my belongings in my cursed room, I found rumpled bedclothes at the foot of the window. I carefully picked them up. Though they were limp now, the simple touch of the fabric made me shiver. I was certain that whoever or whatever had attacked me had worn these sheets. I showed them to Wilson. He took them from me and held out his other hand with a knowing grin. I placed the whistle in his open palm. He burned the linens in the lobby's hearth and the strange whistle was lost forever when Wilson threw it into the sea. At least, I believe it was forever. Sometimes I ramble about the possibility of it washing ashore again, but Wilson cajoles me into silence. He says all this ruminating is bad for my health. But I still brace myself with every whistle on the breeze and every shadow in the distance. The only thing I'm certain of now is that something out there is waiting. Waiting for that whistle to blow again. In his ghost stories, author M. R. James sought to reject the gothic tropes that came before him in favor of new, more contemporary motifs. He reveled in what he called the malice of inanimate objects, turning simple items like a dollhouse or a bedsheet into instruments of shock and horror. In Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, that malicious item is undoubtedly the strange, archaic whistle Parkins discovers on the beach. But the whistle isn't the only thing that inspired the story's title. It also refers to a poem by the 18th century Scottish poet Robert Burns. The speaker begs their suitor to court them in secret, lest their town go mad upon discovering their affair. This parallels the possible homoerotic subtext of the story as Parkins is frequently rescued by his golfing companion, Colonel Wilson. There is also meaning to draw from the final form the spirit of the whistle takes. 
a human shape that rises from Parkin's bed. A bedroom is a place of both safety and sensuality, and it makes sense that it's where Parkins must confront both the monster he's ignored and the desire he's repressed. And here, we see two sides of the beliefs surrounding eroticism between men in the Edwardian era. It can be physically violent and predatory, and it can also be chaste but intimate. The ghost as metaphor for sexuality is a common approach in these tales, but O Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, may be one of the most complicated thanks to the murkiness surrounding M. R. James's sexuality. Many scholars have speculated about it, noting that female characters rarely make appearances in his stories and the fact that James remained unmarried until death. Even to this day, his sexuality remains buried. But perhaps that is exactly the anxiety his story taps into, history's ability to unearth the things we'd like to remain hidden. But we all must remember that the answer to such threats is not to hide. It's to have a dashing military man waiting right outside. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back on Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Lil DeRitta and Jennifer Roche, with writing assistance by Alex Garland, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>